Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Rulani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Joe Habush, who's the CEO and co-founder of MDCalc, which through its smartphone app and website is a leading provider of medical calculators and other tools to help doctors make clinical decisions. MDCalc is used by millions of medical professionals globally, including more than 65% of U.S. physicians. Joe is also the creator and editor-in-chief of EMRA's Pocket Guide series, The Basics of Emergency Medicine, and an emergency physician and associate professor at NYU Langone and Bellevue Medical Centers in New York City. We were introduced by one of our mutual friends and connections, also emergency physician named Dr. Jason Theobald. So thank you, Jason, for doing so. Joe, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thanks so much, Shiv. It's really great to be here with you. So my first question is just for our audience. Beyond the intro we gave you, can you tell us about how you actually got interested in medicine and what it's been like working during these last few months as an ER doc in New York City during COVID? Yes. Wow. So I come from a long line of physicians. My family's from the Middle East originally. My parents met in medical school in Iraq in the 60s. My mother was a female doctor in the 60s in Iraq, <laughs> can imagine. And her and her sisters are all physicians, are pretty incredible women. She's the sixth generation physician. So that makes me and my sister and some cousins, seventh generation <laughs> physicians, pretty wild. So I grew up in one of these medical immigrant families and loved medicine. I was a actually a science nerd, even more than medicine. I was a, a math and physics guy in, in, in high school and actually majored in that in college. This all will come together into MD Calc in a second, you can tell, right? So I loved math. The other thing that I loved to do that felt so at odds with medicine, which I loved, was I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I only said entrepreneur because I just wanted to fix bigger picture problems. To me, it was fun to figure out here's a big new potential way to approach how we're doing something that maybe there's, there'll be some benefit from it and how to creatively find a solution, work your way through those issues in a way that wasn't laid out for you. And I love that concept. And I started doing leadership roles in high school and college. I knew I wanted to do something like that. And it felt so at odds with what so many folks in this audience are going through now, this medical path where a lot of hoops you jump through, they say jump, you say how high, you do that for a long time before becoming a physician. And so eventually I was able to combine it and it took some time for sure, but I really feel so blessed that in my career, I can see patients medically, I can take that medical knowledge, combine it with the math for MD Calc, medical calculators, and it's all entrepreneurial. How did you decide to do emergency medicine? And then can you tell us a bit about the last few months in New York City during COVID, and then we'll dive deeper into kind of how COVID has affected MDCalc as well. When I was in medical school, there wasn't much besides emergency medicine that drew me in. Frankly, I didn't like that many paths in medical school. It felt like so much of medicine was siloed into very specific specialties. And I like the idea of being able to see a lot of variety of types of cases, of types of people. What felt like being a doctor to me was being presented with a new problem and having to figure out while talking and touching a patient how to solve that problem for them. And in the emergency department, we see more undifferentiated chief complaints than anyone else. We are the modern diagnosticians in medicine. So, and it has that variety of cases and variety of type of people from, you know, at NYU, I could have an indigent patient with the CEO of Fortune 500 company right next to each other in the same beds. And I'm 
able to take care of them. So the variety is incredible. And then it also gives us this flexibility to work on other projects, right? When I'm not working a shift, I have time. My medical knowledge is broad and that's also helpful for MD calc and these other things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The most entrepreneurial doctors I've met are mostly in emergency medicine for the reasons you stated. And before the show, we talked a bit about kind of how how your life changed in the, in the heart of NYC. Can you talk a bit more about what you've seen over the past few months? You know, you learn in medical school and along this path of what you're supposed to do during pandemics or during war scenarios, but it's nothing we actually get have done and been trained at in more than just a theoretical way. So when suddenly this pandemic was coming in, this disease, which we really didn't know much about at all and how it would act and how many patients would get it. And every day, more and more patients were getting it. We didn't know how bad it would get. And we were just predicting forward in our, in our minds of when we would run out of space, when we run out of ventilators, things, again, you prepare for, but you never actually have to face whether or not we would get sick. You know, you start hearing all these reports that the young people who get sick are often healthcare workers. Are we going to run out of PPE? That was a big issue for a while. Am I wearing the PPE in the right way? And, you know, no one's perfect with these things. You start touching things. It's really hard to be 100%. Now we know a lot more, so it's easy to be calm about it. But it was emotionally uh, something I was not prepared for. It was an intimidating and, and thrilling thing to face, for sure. That's actually where we came up with the concept of raising the line, because everyone talks about flattening the curve, which is how do we avoid overwhelming the healthcare system? But then the other half of it is how do we increase healthcare capacity? So PPE, as you mentioned, ventilators, the number of people who are trained to do these appointments, telemedicine, clearly. And I think MD-Calc, as well as some of the other things you talk about and uh, probably play into that. So can you talk a bit more about what you've learned from this crisis and what are some lessons you think that we should all take away as far as how we can increase healthcare capacity? I think our healthcare system in the US is not designed for increasing healthcare capacity during an emergency. We are a for-profit system that is broken up across a bunch of different institutions. It is hospitals typically try to operate at 65% or higher utilization that's not a system you want if suddenly everyone's gonna be sick with the disease or if there's some kind of terrorism or biological warfare, et cetera. And a lot of people get sick and we need to really expand quickly. And there are some systems around the world where, where things are done better. For example, in Israel, they think a lot about disaster preparedness. I used to be part of a disaster preparedness medical society that's international and based in Israel. After the hurricanes that hit New York, a few years ago, I was very involved with that. And then during the Ebola response, I was involved with that. So I did a bunch of disaster preparedness and was involved in this, this conference. And you, you learn that some countries where things are more centralized, the efforts, they, they, they can be a lot smarter, right? So in Israel, they have the emergency departments across the country look and feel similar. When, when they need to shift a bunch of physicians there, they're easy to shift there. And because everything's at the same places, you're not a useless new physician not knowing how to use the computer, not knowing who to talk to, not knowing all, all the logistics of the hospital, which is stuff we ran into for sure during the hurricanes um, and, of course, during COVID. My hope is that we're going to learn a lesson from what we were not prepared for and, and prepare better. So we 
have a whole bunch of ICU beds that we can quickly, quickly turn on. We have a bunch of extra ventilators or what have you. And we have a system to get clinicians shifted between institutions, maybe between specialties too. It's another thing we were trying to do and it's, it was done very imperfectly, but we did what we could at the time. You know, I'm based here in Salt Lake City. and I know the Intermountain Healthcare System sent a bunch of physicians over and other healthcare professionals to New York. And, you know, hopefully that'll accelerate compacts and the ability for clinicians to go practice in another state because of, you know, this was a forcing function, a catalyst for change. Exactly. So a lot more people have been exposed to telehealth. They've realized it's not as bad as they thought they would it would be. And I think MDCal can fall into a category of clinical distance support. So I'm curious, what are you seeing what effect has COVID had on MDCalc? And can you just describe the product as a whole? For sure. In medical school and in residency, you learn about what we generally call medical calculators or clinical decision tools. These are famous things. We didn't create any of them. They were created in medicine, published in the peer-reviewed literature, and often are the standards of how to treat patients. Some of them are true calculators. You have a numerical input. Um, and a numerical output. For example, you have a deranged lab value and you have to correct for it. Often there are clinical rules with discrete inputs that help you make an important decision for the patient. My four-year-old fell and hit their head. 15 years ago, all those four-year-olds would get CAT scans in the ER, essentially. A very small percentage of them would have a bleed that you do something about. And all of the other ones would be exposed to radiation. That's not good for kids. It, the cost, et cetera. So a group of smart clinicians created the PCARN rule, which is a bunch of pediatric emergency physicians, tens of thousands of patients in several different studies to come up with a, a rule that says, if you meet XYZ criteria, you're safe. You don't need to get a CAT scan. That is a very patient-centered rule. If you meet these other criteria, you can watch them for six hours and decide. Otherwise, get a CAT scan. That's one of 560 plus clinical rules on MD-Calc across almost every specialty of medicine. Physicians know about these rules. It's hard to memorize them, so they need to look them up. And when you Google search them, because we were the first movers and because we respected the medicine and academics about it so well, we became the first hit when you Google search almost any of these. And now we're the standard app for that as well. And we are the standard EHR integration. And we actually work with the folks who created the rules. So Dr. Phil Wells from the Wells score, he writes for us and et cetera. So all the folks who are doing the academics and literature and creation of these tools will often write for us. That's MDCalc at a whole. Now, during COVID, we stopped what we were doing and said, what can we do to help during this crisis? And our team said, anything, any idea is a good idea right now. Now, as far as the tools go, COVID is ripe for clinical decision tools because it's an area where most clinicians do not have a good gestalt. You get a good gestalt and hunch on how to take care of patients when you've seen hundreds of them. And most of us haven't seen hundreds of them, maybe a few of us in New York now. So you can't rely on what feels right, quote unquote. Number two is there's a huge variability on how doctors are taking care of these patients. Another place where it's great to have a clinical decision tool. And number three is we were fearful that we would have to face a lot of research allocation questions. Those are those terrible scenarios where we're out of ventilators and we have to pick who gets that last ventilator, who gets that last ECMO machine, who gets that last ICU bed. And there's a whole bunch of clinical rules that already exist in medicine where we're the main place doctors go for those rules around those questions, right? Most of the criteria that are put forward by medical societies or, or governments 
will include some type of clinical rule. So we were thrust into the middle of this conversation and did our best to build a COVID resource center with the tools that existed. And none of them were COVID specific because COVID didn't exist before. So now we're constantly trying to see so many of these academic folks are trying to create COVID tools and there's dozens of them out there, but we're being very selective in which ones we will add into our resource center. Because once it's on MDCalc, people are going to really trust it and believe it. That's really interesting how you just described all the rules that are required to treat these code patients, because this is going to be with us for a while. And certainly here in Utah, it's not as bad as it was in New York, but there's a lot of physicians who are seeing these for the first time. So being able to go to that trusted resource makes a lot of sense. Do you have any patient-facing content as well, like, do, or is it all physicians, or can you describe kind of who the users are of MDCalc? Yeah, in general, MDCalc is used by physicians and other clinicians who take care of patients. We don't create patient-facing calculators. There are a few projects we're working on that somehow help the conversation between the physician and the patient. For example, when you explain, to my example earlier, the PCARN rule, now you have to explain to the mother of that four-year-old why you don't want to get a CAT scan for them. And they're worried about, they need that CAT scan. Really, they don't need a CAT scan. Really, they're worried about their kid and they want to do what's best for the kid. So learning how to have that proper conversation, that is such a key aspect of why sometimes great clinical rules that are really helpful for patients don't get followed because either the physician doesn't know how to trust the results or they don't know how to communicate those results. So there are a bunch of academics who literally study the conversation between the physician and the patient or patient's family. And we call these decision aids or sometimes shared decision-making tools where you're discussing with them the pros and cons. Sometimes there are icon arrays that try to express visually risk so it's easier to understand. And these tools are studied in the academic literature. And we've worked with some of the experts who created these tools to create some beta products on MDCalc to help with that. So that, that's, a, that's an area of potential new, new products for us that are hopefully helpful at the bedside. We, um, we partnered with the Council of Medical Specialty Societies and created a video on shared decision-making. And clearly there are a lot of areas um, like palliative medicine or informed consent, risk management, that require much more shared decision-making also to drive behavior change. Yeah, so that's something we should click on. Yeah, for sure. And obviously only a subset of them overlap with medical calculators, but when they do, we're just the natural place. One innovative thing you all released recently, and that was from a conversation you had with a mutual friend of ours too, Bunny Ellerin, is the Ad Grants program. And Osmosis has been fortunate to be part of the MDCalc Ad Grants. Do you mind just talking a bit about how that came to be and what, what your goals are with that? Yes, for sure. When we took pause and said, what can we at MDCalc as a team that's focused on helping the COVID crisis, what can we do? We looked at all types of ideas across everything we do and came up with a few other ways we can support others who are taking care of the COVID crisis. And one of those is through our ad grants program. MDCalc has ads. That's how we support our team. And we know there's so many great organizations out there that are doing what they can do to help the COVID crisis in their unique ways that could benefit by getting in front of more physicians. And again, we're used by two-thirds of U.S. physicians on a weekly basis, very broadly used across medicine. And so we started this ad grants program, pretty similar to the Google grants, uh, ad grants program, where organizations who are doing their part in COVID crisis can apply. We're flooded with applications. Actually, it's really impressive. We worked with Bunny Ellerin for the New York City healthcare business leaders who um, helped promote this concept. 
and they're helping us choose the, the organizations. And happy to say Osmosis was um, the second um, organization chosen. And we are setting up to have your ads on, on MDCal now. I know we're coming up on time. So just two more questions for you. One is, do you have any advice for people who are considering careers or early on in their careers in healthcare at this point, given all you know as an entrepreneur, someone who's treated COVID patients, all the things that are going on in the world? I would say I love medicine. (laughs) I love clinical medicine. I love seeing patients. I love the interaction. I love that I get to learn every day. And I did not love it when I was a medical student. And I was looking for potentially not practicing medicine. And I think it's very difficult to see beyond these many years of training to get to the point where you can actually see patients. As much as possible, I'd like to encourage folks not to just look a couple years into the future, which is really difficult for someone in their 20s who are starting down this path, to try to get exposure of what it's like to actually see patients at the end of that path. Yeah, I wish I had, well, I did eventually do that, but I'm very glad I took the path I did. And there were a couple forks in the road where I could not practice medicine. And I'm really glad that I did. And hopefully we can also make that path a little less burdensome, whether that's debt or or, or streamlining. Like you, I I did not enjoy a lot of medical school um, in terms of the death by PowerPoint uh, concept (laughs) of lectures and the lack of autonomy that comes with it. 50 years ago, the average number of years someone would train before practicing as an attending was less, right? And we keep on tacking on more years. It used to be that some docs would just do an internship and practice. And then people would do a three-year residency. Now you have people doing six, seven, you know, all these extra fellowships, et cetera. They're taking a year off to do research. I mean, it makes sense to streamline it. If we want to become hyper-specialized, let's find creative ways to look through the whole system and, and make it more useful and more based on not memorizing, but on functional knowledge, because 50 years ago was about memorization. We don't need to teach memorization anymore, et cetera, which I think you guys are really great at approaching that problem. You mentioned the, the length of training. I used to give a presentation uh, to like the American Board of Medical Specialties and, and ACME, the CME group. I've given this presentation where one of my first questions to the audience is, what's the average age of a graduating resident? And it's, you know, in the like low to mid thirties, it's gone up every year, right? Yeah. Uh, as you've said. And then I would pop up a slide showing that for the history of humanity, the um, life expectancy, median life expectancy was 29, right? And so literally <laughs> just the definition of lifelong learning where you die before you finished uh, residency for most of humanity. Yeah, we're trying to figure out ways to streamline it and make it more effective, make, make education a little more efficient. So well, osmosis is great at that. Thank you. So thank you for what you've done. Um, my last question is, do you have any other kind of comments or thoughts that you'd like to leave this audience? Wow. I, I just want to say thank you for what you all are doing. You're dedicating yourself to the most honorable profession, in my view, in the world, which is figuring out how to best take care of people and patients and to keep your eye on that. Everything you do needs to be patient-centered. When you make a clinical decision, when you make decisions going forward, don't allow your judgment to be clouded by other aspects. All aspects should be what is best for this patient. Great advice at the end. So Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. With that, I'm uh, Shivaglani. Thank you to the audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. 
For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.